couple of Saturdays ago, we had a uh, real wonderful time. Many of you were there with uh, Larry and Rosemary Lyman, just celebrating with them 46 years of faithful ministry. They served together down in the remote valley of southern Mexico, creating a written language for a people group down there that previously had none, translating the Scriptures into that language that they had created, and in the process, seeing many, many of them come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to see a church planted there amongst those people is tremendous work. Tremendous um, investment of your life and, and what, a, what a wonderful way to invest a life in a ministry like that. And as I've been, uh, been thinking about that, something Larry said to me has been kind of turning over and over in my mind. And, and uh, what he mentioned was that there are actually two churches in the valley there. And uh, that has turned over in my mind because... We have, you know, in that remote valley, and those of you who saw the pictures of what was necessary to get there, it was, you know, airplane and horse and hiking and, you know, crawling. And finally, you had arrived at this place and the land before time. And and, uh, so then they got there and they planted the church, but it wasn't long before there are now two churches in the valley. And, uh, yeah, God works even uh, through... uh, Things like church splits, because that's why there are two churches in the valley. Even in that setting, that uh, setting that is far closer to the first century, to the New Testament kind of setting than what you and I are familiar with today, it doesn't take long before there's First Baptist Church and Second Baptist Church. And, um, you know, that is a function of the world in which we live, I guess. But unity amongst the believers is a difficult thing to maintain. It is a difficult thing to maintain. Just like the second law of thermodynamics predicts that we go from order to chaos in the natural world, there is a sense in which in the spiritual realm as well, divisions come easily to the body of Christ. That unity within a fellowship is a difficult commodity to hang on to. I think one of the reasons that is true in the environment in which you and I live is because of what we consider typically as a virtue here in America, and that is our rugged individualism. The notion that I don't need anybody else. I can do it myself. Right? I don't need your help. I don't want to be beholding to you like my two-year-old granddaughter. I can do it myself. Right? We've all heard that. We've all said that. And so, in a certain sense, we take that notion over into our Christianity. The idea that we don't really need each other that much. It's me and Jesus, right? All I need is Jesus and and everything will be fine. But that, beloved, is contrary to the message of the New Testament. That we do indeed need each other. In fact, that individualism is really the enemy of biblical Christianity. 
We are those who have placed saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are one body. We are vertically related to one Father through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And we are horizontally related to each other through the indwelling Spirit of God and the sharing of common doctrine. So we are vertically one. We are horizontally one. We are one body in Jesus Christ. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. I'm going to finish up something we began last week. If you're using a pew Bible, you want to turn to page 1125. 1125. As we finish what we began last week in verses 7 through 15, a message that I entitled Body Life. And as we were looking at these verses together, 7 through 15, studying this passage, we noted that it has something to say with regard to how do we handle relationships here in Foothill Bible Church. There is something to be gleaned from this passage that will speak directly to us in this day and age and this place and time. In fact, I think there are five expressions of body life that we can discern from this passage and implement here at Foothill so that we will be a living, loving testimony for Jesus Christ. Let me read for you Romans 1. I'm going to go all the way back to verse 1. I'd like to get a running start at it. And then we will pick up where we left off last week. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for His namesake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayer and making request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. And I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have prevented, been prevented thus far in order that I might obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. We noted last time that from this section there are five examples or illustrations of body life, expressions of body life that we can draw from this text just reviewing for you in your handout I've given you kind of the short version of last week 
It's amazing how it can take me an hour to say it and then I can reduce it to three sentences the next week. I guess that's the process of learning or something, right? But anyway, the first expression uh, last week was that we can bless one another in verse 7. Do you remember that? That we can bless one another. Paul blesses the believers in Rome. Believers, we noted, by the way, that he, he really didn't know for the most part. They were at the end of chapter 16. There's a list of names that he wants greetings to be given on his behalf to. So there are some that he knows there at the church at Rome. But for the most part, he has no idea who these believers are on an individual basis. Yet he still wants to bless them. And so he offers them this blessing, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We noted that the, the grace that he is, is, um, is, is wishing upon them is not the grace that originates salvation. It's the grace that maintains our salvation. It is the grace in which we walk as believers. These are believers here in Rome. This is being addressed to, as Paul says, they're saints, Right. These are the believers at Rome, so he is wishing to them not the grace to originate salvation, but the grace to continue to walk in that salvation of which they have become partakers. The grace that will enable them to live for God in a world that is hostile to Jesus Christ. And from that grace, we noted as well last time, comes peace. Verse 7, peace with God the Father as, a, as an outworking of the atonement of Jesus Christ, that peace has now been established, Romans 5.1. And then peace within our own conscience and peace within the horizontal relationships within the body of Christ. So he confers this blessing upon them. People that he did not know, and from that we noted that we too can be a blessing to one another. That even though we might not know everyone here in this body in an intimate way, a first name basis to be able to, to interact with them at that level, we can still confer a blessing upon them in our speech. Our Oikos group this past Friday night, we had a, a good time trying to apply and work through this notion that how can we be a blessing to one another in our speech? It just doesn't come naturally here in the American culture. But it is something, I think, that is worth the effort to think through and implement. So we can be a blessing to one another or we can bless one another. First expression of body life. Secondly, in verse 8, we said that we can be thankful for one another, right? Paul says that he thanks his God through Jesus Christ for you all. Why? Because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Paul is thankful for the work of grace, the work that generates redemption in these people. And he can see it by the way they speak and they live their lives, by the reputation that precedes them throughout the Roman Empire. Rome, the imperial city, the heart of the empire, as these people live for Jesus Christ, the news just goes like wildfire from one end of the empire to the other. And Paul is thankful for that kind of Christian testimony. Beloved, we can be thankful for one another as well. It is an expression of body life that, is, that we can and should cultivate here within Foothill Bible Church. Third, this is all review for you. Third, verse 9, that we can pray for one another, right? He says, verse 9, For God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. He prayed for the believers there at Rome, people he did not know by name, people that he did not know the individual circumstances of, but he prayed for them nonetheless. And we did a little 
hopefully sanctified speculating last week and uh, took us over to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 3, where Paul records for us there prayers that he offered on behalf of the believers at Ephesus, some of which were unknown to him as well. And so we speculated perhaps this is the kind of prayer that Paul offered here for the believers at Rome. He prayed for them and we can and should pray for each other. And that puts us at the uh, the fourth expression of body life from this text. And this one we're going to unpack in a little more detail. The fourth expression is that we can minister to one another. We can minister to one another. Verses 10 through 13. Paul had this ongoing prayer request, verse 10, right? Always in my prayers making requests that he wanted to go to Rome. Paul wanted to go to Rome, yet he had been prevented from doing so by the providence of God. Right? He says, verse 11, I long to see you. He wants to go there and he's wanted to go there for quite a long time, but he has been prevented, verse 13, right? He has been prevented thus far. We don't know exactly how he has been prevented, but some event and circumstances and people perhaps even have have, uh, have thwarted or frustrated his desire to go to Rome to minister to those people. And we can note it only as the providence of God. It just wasn't time for him to go to Rome yet. That time would come, right? And it wouldn't come the way that Paul uh, originally thought it would come, I'm sure. Because when Paul finally got to Rome, he got there as a guest of the, of the Roman Empire, right? They paid his passage for him, there was only one small detail, and that is that he had to have chains around his ankles in order to get there. But in the providence of God, in his timing, God took Paul to Rome. But it had been a desire of his for quite some time. Why? Why did he want to go to Rome? Why was it so important for the apostle to go to Rome? Well, we don't have to speculate on this one. He answers it for us, right? Verse 11, I long to see you in order that, there's his reason, in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That I may impart some spiritual gift to you. The reason Paul wants to go to Rome is to strengthen the church. He wants to go to Rome to strengthen the believers. He wants to, to give them something. He wants to impart something to them. And what, he, what it's called here is translated for you as a, a, a spiritual gift, right? Verse 11, charisma in the Greek, spiritual gift. This is the same Greek word, by the way, that is used over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and later in this epistle, Romans chapter 12. And it speaks of the Holy Spirit imparted abilities for ministry that come to the believer. It's used in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and it speaks of a number of different spiritual gifts or charisma. It speaks about the gifts, plural, of healings, plural, the gifts of healings. It speaks of tongues, is called charisma, prophecy, faith, service, giving, mercy, teaching, leadership, and many others. These are the charisma, these are the spiritual gifts that are laid out at least in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians and Romans. But I think in context here that Paul is not talking about these kinds of gifts specifically. He is not speaking about imparting to them a spiritual gift. 
And the reason I don't believe that is twofold. Number one, the texts of 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 clearly say that it is the Spirit of God who sovereignly imparts the charisma, the gifts of the Spirit. It is not something dispensed by a human. It is dispensed by the Spirit of God according to His desires, His will for His purpose. There is no place in the New Testament that indicates that a man can disperse the charisma to another human being. And clearly here in the text, verse 11 again, Paul says, I long to see you in order that I may impart some charisma to you. So I don't believe he's talking about these specific gifts that are, out, that are laid out for us in the gift lists. I don't think he's talking about that. And in fact, he, the, uh, the text itself even indicates that it's an indefinite gift. Again, verse 11, I want to impart some spiritual gift to you. There's an indefinite sense about what it is Paul wants to impart. And the reason I think it's a, is a indefinite here is because Paul doesn't know yet what it is he wants to impart. Paul doesn't know these people, not intimately. He has not yet been there to Rome. He doesn't know what the church at Rome really needs. So he's saying, I want to come to you, and the reason I want to come to you is I want to impart a spiritual gift to you, but I'm not sure which one yet. Some spiritual gift. When I get there, I will discern what it is you need, and then I will give it to you. So what gift is he talking about? Well, I suspect that the gift he's talking about is a, a gift of some particular doctrinal teaching. I think what Paul is talking about here is some kind of doctrinal teaching or exhortation that he wants to bring to the church at Rome that they would find particularly helpful. He's looking to bring to them that which they need. He expects, as he says later on, that his ministry there is going to produce some fruit among them, right? He's going there because he wants to produce fruit among them. He wants to produce a spiritual harvest. A harvest in terms of conversion. A harvest in terms of edification of the believers there in the church. He wants to build them up in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those things are accomplished through the ministry of the Word. So I think what Paul's talking about here, he says, when I want to impart some spiritual gift, he's talking about teaching the church. I want to impart to the church some kind of teaching, some doctrinal understanding that they need to have in order to grow in their faith as believers. This is, furthermore, he says in verse 12, that not only does he want to impart something to them, but he wants to receive something from them, right? He says, that, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you well among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. It's fascinating, isn't it? Here is the Apostle Paul, the founder of Gentile Mission, who's going to go to this church in Rome that is comprised primarily of Gentile believers, and he's going to bring something to them, but he also says, I want to receive something from you. I am looking for a two-way ministry. I'm going to bring something to you, but I'm going to get something from you. We are going to encourage one another. He is looking forward to mutual encouragement. Now, I find that pretty exciting. I find that pretty exciting that the Apostle Paul understands that the church has something to give to him. This is the guy, by the way, beloved, who's written most of the New Testament, right? 
This is the one we look to as the who, who by revelation of God has delivered such powerful theology and doctrine to us. A, a man whose life is so worthy to emulate as we, as we read his biography recorded in the pages of the New Testament. Someone whom we would say that for many of us, if we were honest, we don't think his feet quite touched the ground. And he says, I'm ready to come to you and I got something for you, but I'm looking for something you've got from me. I am looking for something back. Paul recognizes reciprocal blessings. Reciprocal blessings. And that's the lesson I want to extract from this. The idea of reciprocal blessings that we can minister to one another. We can minister to one another. You need me and I need you. And you need the person sitting next to you and you need the person sitting on the other side of the room and they need you. And you up in the balcony who are like a separate group, you need us down on the main floor, okay? And now we need to get out of our comfort zone and come up and see you too. We need each other. We need each other. Because we can minister blessing to one another. That we can be encouraged. Look again at the text, verse 12. That I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each by the other's faith. We all have a testimony for Jesus Christ. Those of us who know Him in a personal and saving way. Isn't that right? We have a testimony of what God has done in our life through Jesus Christ. And every one of our testimonies is unique. Is unique. You know, we all have unique fingerprints. Isn't that true? We all have unique fingerprints. And I understand we have unique retina prints too or something like that, right? Well, guess what? We also have unique spiritual testimony. Our spiritual heritage is unique. God worked in your life differently than He worked in mine and differently than He worked in this person's over here and that person's there. But God worked nonetheless. And so we can encourage one another. One very practical way that we can encourage one another is to share our testimonies. To share our testimonies of what God has done for us. One of the things that uh, we like to do in our family and have liked to do for quite some time is that when we have a new family come and join us for a meal together, is we we like to hear their testimony. We ask them to, to give us their Christian testimony. Now we kind of couch it and, and say, and tell us how first how you came together, and we like to hear that story too, but what we're really driving for is tell us about what God has done in your life. Give glory to God by saying what He has done for you, because you know when you do that, you encourage me. See, my faith is built up, my faith is encouraged. When I can see what God has done in you, I know what He's done in me. It's amazing what God has done in this man. But it's equally amazing what God has done in you as well. So there is great encouragement to hear one another's testimony. You know, to uh, stand in the pulpit and be the preacher, there's certain training that has to go with it, right? Certain giftedness and on and on and on. Not just anybody can come up and stand here and, and speak. But you know, in the context of sharing testimonies with each other, everybody can preach the gospel. Everybody is qualified. Everybody who knows Christ is entitled to speak their peace. Some are more eloquent than others. Some have longer testimonies. But everybody has a testimony. They have something they can share with one another about what God has done for them in Jesus Christ. And that encourages each other. I suspect that's what Paul's talking about here in verse 12. I suspect what Paul's talking about is that he can't wait to get there. 
and to sit around dinner. You know, and after dinner and pour the well, they didn't drink coffee. But anyway, um, maybe they should have. But after the meal, you know, you, you sit back and you're a little more relaxed and you just begin to talk about what God has done in your life. Tremendous, tremendous encouragement. And that's one way, beloved, that we can implement this lesson of ministering to one another. You know, we did a pulpit exchange here a couple of weeks ago. And uh, there were many, many reasons to do that. But one of the benefits that came from that is that you ministered to that man, Milton Vincent, and his wife Donna. Did you know that? You ministered to them greatly. And I know that to be true because last night, Carol and I had dinner with them. And we talked about them being here and and, uh, us being there. And that body ministered to us. But let me just talk about how you ministered to them. I bet you didn't even know that you did that, did you? But as you gather together, hundreds of you, to sing the praise of Jesus Christ, you filled their heart to overflowing, just rejoicing in what God has done in your life. Your worship encouraged them. Beyond that, they were encouraged with the commonality of belief. That when He opened the Word of God with you, that you followed along. You opened your Bibles and you pursued along with Him. And by your facial features, you know, the nodding heads and the smiling. By the way, preachers like that. You know, we like that. A a good nod or a smile every uh, now and again goes a long way. Okay? So you encouraged him by your active and attentive uh, uh, ministry to the Word. That you you wanted to hear from God. You came here expecting to hear from God. And so when he opened the Word of God to you, it was a blessing to his heart. He saw the grace of God played out in your lives. He saw the grace of God played out in you. He pastors a church over in Riverside. You know, it could be halfway around the world for the way it is around here. And yet he came here and here is another group of believers. He was specifically, guys, and he told me this, he was specifically blessed by you guys that have had lunch together with him and the staff there at Cornerstone. And what he was blessed by is that he only knew you in a lunch context. You know, sitting around a lunch table and and, uh, he commented about your manners. But what he said was, no, I'm kidding you, but. But what he said was that it really encouraged him to see you stand up in front of God's people and see the spirit of God work in your life. And and then it it transformed you into a minister of Jesus Christ that encouraged his heart. So there was a lot of mutual encouragement that took place in a pulpit exchange. Beloved, we need each other as a body. I mean, it's, it's really a simple message, but we need each other as a body. And that means we need to spend time together. This is a big celebration time. We're all together here, but this is a, this is a big celebration. We have a little time here. We did it just a little bit ago, right? Where we kind of get out of our pews and move around and shake people's hands and, and speak a word or two to them. And there's importance to that, and I'm glad we do that. But that's not sufficient. There's not enough time to really speak into somebody's life with any kind of depth. So we need more time together. We need to spend time together. Here comes the advertisement, okay? We need to spend more time together. What that means is that if you're not involved in a, in, a, uh, in a fellowship group, fellowship class on Sunday morning at 9 o'clock, you need to be. You need to be here at 9 o'clock because we need you. See, you don't need to be here because of something you're going to get. 
You need to be here because of something you're going to give. We need you. And beyond that, we need you to be involved in oikos groups. These care groups that meet throughout the week. They meet on different nights through the week. And and, uh, by God's grace, uh, soon there will be other groups opening up. We'll have more opportunities. But we need you to be involved. We need you to spend time together. We need, I need, I'll just put it that way. I need you to share your insights from the Word. I need you to talk to me, David. Let me tell you what God taught me this week. Let me show you what I learned this week from this passage. Yeah, you told me what it means, but let me tell you how God applied it. See, and that's an encouragement to me. The sharing of insights from the Word of God. I need to see you modeling faith in in the face of adversity. I need to see the grace of God alive in your life. And that enables you to walk by faith in the the face of great adversity. That encourages me. That strengthens me. I need need you involved in my life through prayer. And I need to be involved in yours through prayer. We need time together. You know, we're a family. Isn't that true? We're a family. Take a look at verse 13, by the way. He says, I do not want you to be unaware. Next word. Brethren. Brethren. Brothers and sisters. We are a family together. And family identity is best passed on by spending significant amounts of time together. Moms and dads, you want to pass on a family identity to your children? It's done by spending time with them. That's how you transfer your values to them. That's how you you transfer the faith that you hold to them. You spend time with them. Lots of time. Gobs of time. Jesus said in Luke 6 and verse 40 that when a disciple is fully grown, he will be just like his teacher. You want your children to be like you. Spend a lot of time with them. And we need to spend a lot of time with each other so that we will grow together as a family of God. Our Oikos groups are intergenerational. They are intergenerational. That means that we encourage people who are young and people who are older to be part of the same group. And that presents its own obstacles. Those of you who are involved in the Oikos ministry, particularly when you have young children, you know that it can present some real obstacles. But it's worth it. It's worth it to be together as a family. You know, because as younger, the younger generation can learn from the older generation. They can learn things like maturity and, and sensibility and gravity and, and so forth. The life experiences from the older generations. And the older generations can avoid becoming calcified by spending time with the younger generations. Right? They still have a real zest for life. They're not all uh, you know, burned out and, and uh, cynical about things. So you, if you're older, you need them. If they're younger, you need the older people. We need to be together. We need a family that's together. That's one way that we can apply this principle of ministering one to another. And that leads us to our fifth expression of body life that we can draw out of this text in verses 14 and 15. And that is we can gospelize one another. We can gospelize. My wife, before I came up here, she looked at the outline and she said, gospelize, is that a word? And I said, well, the Apostle Paul made up words. 
happens. So I made up word, gospelize. I bet you know what it means, even though you won't find it in a dictionary. Okay? So I acknowledge that it's not a word yet, but we could make it one. We need to gospelize one another. Verses 14, 15. He says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul's desire to go to Rome is ultimately driven by his missionary obligation. Okay, he says it right there, right? I am under obligation. There is a sense in which this man had a missionary obligation of of which he was deeply conscious. It was there in his life. God has set him apart for the gospel. That's what verse 1 says, right? Paul, bondservant, right? Called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So he, he was conscious of the fact that he had been set apart for God's gospel and that his mission field was specifically to the nations, ethnos, to the Gentile groups, to the people groups of the world. In fact, he says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 16 and 17, he says, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward, but if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. He's saying God has laid on me the task of preaching the gospel. And so it's an obligation and it's something I need to do. And so he speaks of that obligation here in verse 14. And as he explains it to the believers in Rome, he uses a pair of couplets that that emphasize the universal nature of this obligation. You can see them there in verse 14. The first couplet are the Greeks and the barbarians. The second couplet are the wise and the foolish. Two couplets that that, that, um, Paul uses to express the universal nature of his obligation. Now, he's writing to the church at Rome, the believers in Rome. And these are, these are people that are, that are living in Rome, which is considered the center of culture for the ancient world. They are living there at the center of culture of the, of the civilized world. These were people who had assimilated the Greek language, the Greek culture, and of course Roman law, and it was all put together. And so these would be, when he, when he says obligation to the Greeks and to the barbarians, that's what he's speaking about when he talks about the Greeks. He's not talking about people who are of Greek ethnic descent, he's talking about people who are of Greek cultural descent. And that is the world, the cultured world. And then he uses a... a, a, a Comparison and barbarians. Do you see that? It comes from the Greek word, by the way, um, barbaros. Barbaros. It's, it's transliterated, transliterated for us as barbarians. It's not translated, it's transliterated. It's just a Greek word moved over into English. Barbaros comes to us as barbarians. And what that word, um, the, the way it comes together is, is that the uh, non-Greek language is what it sounded like to a Greek speaker was bar, 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 bar. Okay? And if you've ever been in a situation where a foreign language is spoken, that's kind of what it sounds like to you, right? It's just a buzzing in your ear. Bar, 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 bar. And so they were the barbaros, the barbarians. Alright? And so all he's speaking about when he uses the word barbarians here in contrast to the Greek is he is speaking about the cultured, the civilized world, and the uncultured, uncivilized world. 
So Paul says he's under obligation to speak the gospel to those who have culture and to those who do not. The second couplets he uses here are those who are wise and those who are foolish. There he is talking about those who are formally educated and those who are not. The wise are the formally educated. The foolish are those who are not formally educated. And so what he's doing by using these couplets is he is sweeping up the whole world together. He's saying that the gospel is for people of culture and people of intellectual standing and education. And the gospel is for people who don't have much culture and people who are not very well educated. All right. The Greek and the barbarian, the wise and the foolish. The gospel is for everybody, everybody. One message for all people, one message, all people. And that message is the gospel. It is the gospel. And notice also, by the way, that the message is every bit as necessary for the believer as it is for the unbeliever. Do you see that? Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel where? In Rome, but to you. Do you see that? Verse 15. I am eager, for my part, he says, to preach the gospel in Rome. But he says a little more than just that. He says, I am eager on my part to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Who's he writing to? He's writing to the people that over here in in verse 7 he has called beloved of God in Rome and saints. He is eager to preach the gospel in Rome, not just to the unbeliever, but to the believer. He's eager to preach the gospel to the believer. And thus, the fifth expression of body life here, that is that we need to gospelize one another. We need to preach the gospel to each other. That's what Paul intends to do in Rome. And I believe that that's what we need to do here in Upland, one to another. We all need the gospel in massive quantities. And the reason we need it in massive quantities is because it leaks out. Okay? You and I are like a bathtub without a plug. And so we need to continue to be pouring water in because it's pouring back out from the bottom. That is, that we forget that which we know to be true. And so we need to be continually reminded of the truth of the gospel. Paul's writing a letter here. He can't get to Rome yet. He will get there, but he can't get there now. And so the best he can do is he sends them a letter. He sends them this letter to the Romans, which happens to be the most complete presentation of what? What's it about? Talk to me. It's the gospel, right? He wrote to a church the gospel because that's what they need. We gave out gospel primers at the end of last year in... Um, I just think it's a fabulous book, but let me just quote to you just a, a little bit from it. The Gospel Primer that, that uh, Pastor Milton Vincent wrote. In there, I think he's very right when he says, The Gospel is so foolish, according to my natural wisdom, so scandalous, according to my conscience, so incredible, according to my timid heart, that it is a daily battle to believe the full scope of it as I should. There is simply no other way to compete with the forebodings of my conscience, the condemnings of my heart, and the lies of the world and the devil than to overwhelm such things with daily rehearsings of the Gospel. You need the Gospel every day, and so do I. And I need to preach it to myself, and you need to preach it to yourself, but we need to preach it to each other. We need to preach the Gospel to each other as well. 
fact, this last fall, we began a cable TV ad campaign called People Like You. People Like You. It's showing here in the Ontario cable zone, certain nights of the week and certain programs. And the theme, and many of you have seen those commercials, the theme of those is that, uh, that the church is made up of all kinds of people. People that are old, people that are young, people that are well-educated, people that are not so well-educated, people, you know, boys and girls and from all walks of life, from all kinds of, of marital situations, be they single or be they divorced or be they happily married, be they widowed or whatever it is. All kinds of economic circumstances are all portrayed in that series of commercials. You see, beloved, because they are people like us, because you are people like them. This is the world in which we live in. We are people from all kinds of walks of life and varieties, and we all need the same thing. We need the gospel. We need the gospel. So the gospel is for people like you, and like you, and like you. The gospel is for us. So we need to make a regular habit of preaching the gospel to each other. We need to make that a regular habit. How do we do that? How do we preach the gospel to each other? Well, one place to do it is in the Oikos groups. Within the Oikos groups, within the small community there, there's a, there's a mechanism and a means to do that, to preach the gospel to one another. Let me try something with you here. It's kind of taking a big chance here, but you know one way we could preach the gospel to each other would be we could all memorize it together. We could memorize the gospel together. I know some of you are memorizing the book of Romans. You've set yourself by God's grace to memorize the book of Romans. I think that is a wonderful and noble goal. How about if we were to all memorize the gospel together? Look in your bulletin. I have provided you there with a written summary of the Gospel. It's on a little white insert in your bulletin. It is not inspired, but I think it is complete. It speaks of the Gospel. I think it's entitled, Preach the Gospel to Yourself. Is that what it says? It's a series of points that lay out what the Gospel is. You know, this could be memorized. We could memorize this together. And in the process of memorizing, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be really cool if, if uh, when we met people, we could kind of encourage one another and, and even quiz one another, how are you doing with the Gospel? You could speak it to one That would be a way to bless one another, is to repeat the Gospel or some piece of it to one another. While you were in open defiance against your Creator, He in His mercy reached out to you and provided an innocent substitute to bear the penalty for your sin. That substitute was His own Son who willingly died in your place in accordance with the eternal plan whereby God had graciously decided to save His own enemies. Because you had no interest in Him, God sought you out and through His Holy Spirit created the faith you needed to embrace His gift for you. In effecting your salvation, God not only freed you from the penalty of your sin, but also from its enslavement, granting you access to the power necessary to say no to sin's enticements. 
When you fail to say no to sin and reject God's will for you, He feels no wrath towards you, but floods you with His grace in order to maintain your justification. Conversely, when you reject sins of Lord, God's love for you does not increase. His love for you did not end with your salvation, but extends to every circumstance and difficulty of life, whereby He subjugates them and forces them to do us good. Someday God will remove you from this life either by either death or Christ's triumphant return and your struggle against sin will cease. At that point, you will enjoy unhindered fellowship with your Creator, Redeemer, and Friend. Beloved, that's the Gospel. That is what I need. And I need it all the time because I am like a bathtub without a stopper in the bottom. I just plain forget. And you forget too. You forget too. Maybe this is something we can do together. Maybe there's a better idea. I just think it would be really powerful. And if this year 2007, we were to commit ourselves corporately to some kind of memory that, that would draw to our minds the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It would change our lives. It would change our lives. Well, Paul has given us here five expressions of body life. Five expressions. We can bless one another. We can be thankful for one another. We can pray for one another. We can minister to one another and we can gospelize one another. If we were to do this, if we were to do this, our spiritual growth would take a quantum leap. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for this body, this group of believers that meet here at 1330 West 15th Street, known as Foothill Bible Church. I thank You, Father, for every last one of them, every man, woman, and child. I thank You for the families that have been here through the years, faithfully ministering year in and year out, giving of their time, their talent, their energies, ministering to the body. I thank You, Father, for the new families that have come, that You have brought over the last year and, and even months and weeks. I thank You, Father, for what You are doing in their lives and what You will do through them as they unite here with us. I thank You, Father, that we can display the glory of Jesus Christ to the city of Upland. And that the community is looking on I pray, Father, for Your grace to enable us to paint a very clear picture for all who would care to look. Lord, may You work in our hearts even in the year to come. May You make the Gospel more central in each and every one of our hearts. Lord, whether it be through a corporate-wide memorization or whether it, it be in other means that You might choose. Father, may You work among us, please. We want to be like Jesus Christ. We want to know Him more fully, more deeply, more passionately. We pray for Your grace to be poured out on us. For Jesus' sake, Amen.